Welcome everybody to the Learn with Lowell show. I'm your host Lowell. Today we are joined with Robin Mansukini, the CEO of Deciduous Therapeutics. Robin is a biochemist from Pittsburgh and his company Deciduous is dedicated to harnessing the power of immune biology to ablate senescent cells and treat comorbidities associated with aging, such as type 2 diabetes. In this episode, we will dive into the research that Robin and his team have done in-house in their secret sauce, as well as exploring the current state of research on senescent cell elimination and its potential impact on health span and lifespan. Robin will also share his thoughts on developing a pipeline for deciduous therapeutic senolytic drugs and how they differ from other companies in the field of senolytic. If you like this type of content, please subscribe. We're putting out two to three new episodes weekly. Thank you everyone for liking, subscribing, and commenting thus far. Let's stay curious to learn about Robin Senolytic Drugs on this episode of Learn With Lowell Show. What stops Roche from coming in, hiring a bunch of PhDs, and just like taking your lunch with what you're building? Like the, the some elements of IP are out there for people to see, and they might mm-hmm. be able to replicate or just like work their way around it. So I'm curious, like, what, what's your defensibility? Like, how do you, how does, how, why does Roche not do that? Or... Yeah. you know, giant conglomerate, insert name. Yeah, there's probably a couple of reasons. I've never worked for a big company like that before, so I can't tell you all the inner musings. I would say, you know, one, it's not about the, it's not always about the money. Um, a lot of times about the expertise and the brain power behind it and the focus on that particular program. So, you know, senescence removal via the immune system is our work. Um, we understand it at a level that I, I think other groups, um, if they wanted to take them, a fair amount of time to catch up and actually fully understand it. Um, you know, the the drugs you have to make, how they can um, activate the immune target, then how to measure that and actually quantitatively prove out that it works. None of these things are trivial and they're not things that you're going to give away in a publication. It's things that you just kind of, you know, the lab and the group has a unique knowledge of these things. And even if I gave it to you on a protocol and said, here's how you do it, it still wouldn't, you know, be trivial to to replicate. I know that because we've had to transfer the work from our academic partner lab to our own lab, and it was not trivial. So I think part of it is just in, you know, you know the the old idea that it's not about ideas, it's about execution over that. So I think that's one. Two, there's IP that's kind of in the way. So we have method patents around using the immune systems, specifically natural killer T cells to activate, um, sorry, to specifically around using natural killer T cells to clear senescent cells to treat a wide variety of diseases. And then three, we have a novel suite of drugs that um, carry out that process. So it's not to say that somebody else couldn't come in and try. Um, chances of success are probably not great because the internal expertise doesn't exist and it takes some time to to build that up. And it's hard to know if it's if it's good enough until you know you're pretty far down the road. Then lastly, you know, if I had to make a conjecture about farm, I would say, you know, they have a lot of options about what they can do. Um, and I would say that they tend, you know, historically precedent was just they tend to buy things rather than do their own things. So they tend to like it when it's been de-risked where they can say, cool, it's working. We know it's working now because um, the data is irrefutable. We'd rather pay you know, a couple hundred million bucks up front to just take it rather than try to do it on our own. Because if we do it on our own, it's still going to take a bunch of time. Money isn't the biggest um, obstacle for us. And this way we don't put internal resources on it before we know it actually works. Yeah, I miss the days when we had like a Bell Lab so we could look to that, you know, just doing innovative stuff and doesn't just like you know buy things because i think of, i think of buying stuff for the most part um buy on companies and whatnot is it's kind of lazy you know if you have all those resources like they they could work out partnership agreements where i mean all, just their, their economic their, their economy of scale like the the bench space all these things that they can get because they have all that money behind them to yeah. keep their costs lower like <clears throat> if they took that efficiency and applied it with the mentality like had like a like a hundred you know a hundred robins with you know a, a team of, about around them and you get like um equity sharing and stuff like that 
I just imagine like just the explosion of potential there. But we don't really have Bell Labs anymore. It's my dream one day to build something very similar to that because I think that uh, people need to dream, and I think there's something to be said about you know. I, I feel like at a certain stage, companies just uh, get a little lazy in that way where they just buy versus build, and then it's like, what are you really doing? Yeah, you know, it's it's thing like the baseball analogy, right? You know, why don't the Yankees and Red Sox win the World Series every year? They're the most well-funded baseball teams, the Dodgers, most well-funded baseball teams every single year. Sometimes they win, sometimes they don't, you know? It's, so it's really more about execution and not just paying a lot of money for players um, that, that wins. So it's not to say it doesn't give you a leg up, but you still have to go out and actually win the game. So that'd be my best analogy from uh, from the sports world. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I think it comes down to the people. After If you set aside the laziness and you normalize the, the money that's going to be used to build the thing, the, <clears> the people are the unique factor. Um, I, I'm curious when, in terms of like overfunding, what, um, this is a bit of a, a, a diversion, but what do you think about like places like Altos Labs where they just got like a, a giant bunch of money and they're, they're kind of hitting, I think they're hitting, they're hitting senescence. Like some of the things they're doing is senescence related. I, I think if I remember right. Yeah. I think a lot of companies say that. I don't know. I mean, I think every company thinks about it a little bit differently <laughs> yeah. and, and, and to say you're doing it versus actually doing it and having data for something that's actually going to go to the clinic are two very different things. So I, like I said, I think it's about execution, about speed, about expertise, more so than anything else. Um, to your question, what do I think about Altos Labs? I, I, I don't think about them. I mean, not, not, not in a bad way. I just, we're too focused on what we're doing to really spend time thinking about like what other people may or may not be doing. So I, I really am very similarly focused on what, what we are doing. And I see the press releases. I know what's going, you know, I know roughly what's being attempted or going on, but I don't spend any time beyond that thinking about it um i just you know I, I feel like we have a nice niche carved out here and we just want to pursue that yep. is it a normal time horizon from uh compared to normal pharma uh pharmacological or biologics in terms of what you're developing is it going to i think most people think of it like uh, like a five to a uh, ten year span to get something into market is it yeah. going to be something similar to for that for you guys yeah, I mean, and there's ways, you know, that you can plus or minus that by a couple of years, depending on what you're doing. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd say it's it's normal drug development. Um, you know, when I, there's some indications where you can get, you know, we get through phase two and because it's so rare, so there's such a high need, you can get approval, accelerated approvals earlier, warfarin designations will allow you to, to jump the line a little bit. But, you know, you don't want to, those are things that are kind of speculative right now for anybody. So I'd say it's possible to, you know, improve timelines under the 10 year horizon by maybe 20, 30% at best. But, you know, there's always going to be challenges, you know, sometimes with patient recruitment with rare diseases, um, you know, and that, that could also then bottleneck speed. So I'd say, you know, it's kind of a normal um, timeline for us as it would be for anybody. Um, you know, advantages we have, you know, we're not, we're not dosing our drugs very frequently. So the amount of um, the, the safety studies tend not to be as long, efficacy studies tend not to be as long. Um, so there's a little bit of makeup there, but you know it's not you know it's not something you would say like it's going to be drastically lower. It's going to be you know probably a standard you know uh, you know uh, a um, one degree lower than than traditional drug development. Yeah, I've always wondered to you know what are the, what is the limiting factors like running something? Could you could you have like three shifts of people like <laughs> running the data? Um, but it sounds like for the most part, so the regulatory approval like meeting those hurdle requirements that slows things down. Um, it, outwardly, that's what it looks like. You're you're on the inside. What do you think are the, yeah. the 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 blocks right now that are that are taking the time? Yeah, so it's yeah, regulatory can be part of it. Um, and, but let's let's dig into regulatory, right? So regulatory is part of it when you run studies that the FDA doesn't find useful. So if you do a certain safety study, a certain species, the FDA might look at that after you 
done it, you know, in your pre IND work and say, that's not really useful for this drug or this mechanism. So go do it in a different higher species. Like, and so, so for example, you might do it in a dog and they, they might come back and say, we really want you to do this in a monkey. Right. So then that that's where you can do, lose time in regulatory. But if you have the right people in place, the right plan in place, the right communication with the FDA, that shouldn't happen. That's kind of a JV mistake to make. Um, so, but it, it, you know, it does happen in some companies on occasion. Um, I would say that um, probably the bigger bottlenecks can be, particularly in the early stages of discovery and in, in, in going from in vivo POC to development candidate to formulation um, to CMC manufacturing. Those are all things that you you don't really have a plan for until you run into a problem. If that makes sense, right? So you you kind of you make these drugs. Maybe they work through a certain route, and then eventually you've got to transition the route to something that's more um, um, clinically preferable, and that, that can be a challenge. Formulations can be a challenge. Um, you know, finding the the um, the dose ranging um, talks can be um, can take some time. You know, all, all those kinds of things that kind of come up. Um, CMC manufacturing scale up. You know, taking very complex uh, manufacturing processes and trying to reduce them down to things that are more simple and more tractable to um, being. Um, um, preferable for patients and for large-scale manufacturing. Those are all things where you can lose time, um, but you don't have to know, know that until you actually know that. So it's kind of like, yeah. it, it's kind of like it's a problem and it becomes a problem. And, um, you know, it's not, you can't overplan for it, but th that's kind of where you want to build and buffer in your budgets and timelines. Yeah. And you also have the, I think it's, uh, I had an engineer who kept uh, giving this to me when I was worried about timelines. And I think it was called like the million man month or something. So the basic idea is like you can hire a, like at a certain point hiring more people or working more on something like has de decreased uh, results which uh, uh i thank that engineer for pointing that out to me because i'm sure i was annoying about timelines um mm. the uh I, i'm so you're pre-clinical you're i think this year is the last year as you settle the biological like what are you what are you doing before you actually do clinical uh application next year if i remember your timeline right 2024 uh, so we, we would plan to be in the clinic. Um, you know, we're still sorting out a couple of things right now internally on the preclinical side um, that could affect timelines. So I'd say just purposes of public consumption, we have a suite of drugs that activate the target that are highly efficacious in, in multiple in vivo models. Uh, we're now focusing on, you know, which route do we want to take this down? Meaning like, do we want to, you know, which way do we want to dose this? You know, we could do a couple of ways. We do IM. In Jamuscar, we do subcutaneous, we do IV. So we're, we're sorting that out right now. Um, once that's nailed, we'll move into dose-ranging toxicology. Then once that is settled, um, then you move into kind of more standard timelines of what IND enabling studies look like, you know, in small, large animals, um, CMC work, getting ready for the for the clinical trial. So I'd, I'd say definitely not 2024, more likely sometime, you know, two years or so from now. Okay. So I'm, I'm just... Uh... Generally curious, what are what have been the like some of the highs and lows of just getting to this point yeah. where you're you're like you're kind of like I think you're about three years in if I remember the dates right you're three years yeah. in now so like you're pretty like it's almost like you can touch it in terms of like mm -hmm. if you looked at it on a calendar but like what yeah. would have been some of the highs and lows of that? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I'd say there, there's always there's highs and lows at every step. You know, you always um, things to celebrate, things to you know work on. I'd say initially the the challenge was, you know, hey, we found this, what well, potentially was a very interesting target or, you know, natural killer T cells we identified very early in the company could be interesting for senescence removal. But that was a hypothesis at that point. It was like, you know, here's data that supports that this target's going to be interesting, but we don't actually have any, any in vivo data or any in vitro data at that point to support that. So how do you, how do you tell that story and get enough funding to go and actually go 
you know, try it. So I'd say that was kind of a, you know, that was the early challenge was, you know, there's something really cool here on paper, but it's paper, right? Mm-hmm. So then you move from that into, okay, now we, you know, you take a prototype tool molecule, you get it to work. Okay, great. But the tool molecule has a bunch of issues, which is, you know, what you would expect from a tool molecule. Can you go make your own molecules that, you know, design out those issues? And that's not trivial, right? Because you got to make certain changes in the molecule. If you make certain changes, the activity might also go away. So we, we you know, went offsetting on that for a little bit of time, solve that problem. Um, after we solved that problem, it became around formulation and delivery routes. You know, didn't expect that that was going to be a major hangup, but it was, you know, it wasn't, it didn't end up being a major hangup, but, you know, it did, it did take several months to sort that out. Um, the good news is when you sort those things out, it also creates new IP. So, you know, but there's constant highs and lows. Um, you know, there, there is no, if you're just on highs, you're probably not doing the right work. If you're just on lows, you're probably not doing it. You might be doing the right work, but not doing it very well. So um, I think in this business tend to be more lows and highs because the highs tend to be short-lived. The lows tend to be um, things that can bog you down for some time. And it's hard to explain those sometimes to, you know, current investors and future investors. So I would say, but the, the highs don't feel high unless you've had the lows. So I'd say, we have, I think the lows are interesting, probably more retrospectively than during, but um, really requisite part of the whole biotech development process. Yeah, I think there's like one of my favorite quotes of someone describing what it's like to like uh, build something. I think it was Elon Musk. And he said, it's like chewing glass and staring into the abyss. And I think that's that's a funny, but I think uh, applicable thing because I think sometimes people look at someone like yourself who's leading to do something, and they don't yeah. talk about the stress, the anxiety. Um, I think at a certain point you just kind of get used to it, uh, and then it's like, oh, okay. Anyone else who would be in your shoes at this point would probably be unhappy at some of those lows and not handle them as well. But you kind of yeah. build like a muscle tolerance. It's like a like in many ways it is a muscle. Like you're building the muscle of, of grit. And that's, I think that's one of the reasons why in, in any industry, when I'm talking to a filmmaker, mm-hmm. uh, uh, like a, a comic book artist, a, a voice actor, a, a biotech founder, like grit or a VC fun, uh, person, like grit is the number one thing that everyone looks for because it's, because yeah. everything's hard. Yeah. So it's very true. And, I remember, and you're right. It, it is a muscle. Um, I remember when I was running my first company, we'd get, you know, we've got a bad result. I felt like the world was falling. You know, I remember like the, just the, the feeling of doom um but you know then it happens so many times you kind of over time you kind of realize like it's, it's not falling it's going to be okay it feels bad today but it's actually in the long term empowering because you can talk about hey we had this really big challenge it didn't look very good and then we did x y and z it took three months but we figured it out and so it actually becomes in the right context extremely empowering um but in the moment it sucks so you know kind of is what it is um and I think the older you get, the more you deal with it, the more it happens. You probably just get good at dealing with it and just figuring it out and not, and just, I think just keeping a steady hand, you know, as I tell my team all the time, you know, we're not going to get too high. We're not going to get too low. We're going to stay even. Um, and, you know, good results are good results. And that's great, but we're not going to go crazy about them. Bad results happen. We're not going to go crazy about them either. We're going to kind of stay, keep it, you know, we're going we're to keep it level all the way through. Mm-hmm. The, um, is it, is it, the confidence of knowing in retrospect that it's going to work out and you're going to feel good once you're through the hump uh, or what other potential strategies do you have when you are feeling that way? One, mm-hmm. one that I use is when I'm feeling that way, I, I just think, oh, what's one thing I can do? Yeah. What's one thing I can do that would meaningfully move the ball forward to this strategic <clears throat> thing that I want to uh, accomplish? And I, I, I phrase it that way because there's a lot of people who will just immediately start doing, I call it busy idiot work. I don't know if you've yeah. ever seen this, but like they start doing a lot of stuff like none of it matters but yeah. then they feel good about it yeah I, I have i have two responses one is professional one is non-professional so my 
professional response is always to read something. So let's say we don't know, you know, how to properly deliver compounds. My first response is always to grab my laptop, look up a couple of papers, sit on a couch and just start reading, right? So that I feel like we're at least moving in a correctable direction. Um, so that, that kind of alleviates the initial pain. Um, I think just, you know, I, I try to respond to all negativity with, by doing work. That's usually, you know, I think you can sit there and feel bad for yourself or sorry for yourself, but nobody else is. So, I mean, who cares? So I've just tried to retaliate now, but just, you know, just put an effort and that'll, at least then you're, you're trying to do something. Um, the second one is, you know, just exercise is always important. So it's, it's easy to feel bad when things aren't going well and you kind of like, you know, you get in the malaise. Um, so I've always developed the muscle of like, you know, wake up, work out, you know, that'll be the hardest thing I do all day. And then after that things, you know, things typically aren't as challenging as the morning. So um, I try to swallow the frog every morning and then go from there. So nothing feels that overwhelming during the day, but there are times where you kind of get knocked over like a tidal wave and you just kind of got to work through it and just kind of let it wash over you, embrace it, and then just, you know, work against it. Do you ever, um, I keep reading, uh, there's a guy who does a podcast who's a neuroscientist and he talks about doing like an ice, like a, like an ice bath type thing in the morning. I mean, I've been tempted to experiment with it because he says it's really good for you and you'll want to work afterwards. But then it's like, it's like rolling in snow. Like, I, like you could tell me it's good for me, but I really don't want to do it. But I'm curious, like, have you experimented with this at all? Like, is it, is, yeah. Not the ice bath, but I do, um, I do cold showers. Hmm. Um, basically every, every day, not, not, you know, like not for like 10 minutes, but like, you know, a good two minutes as cold as I go. Um, in the beginning, it sucks. And then you kind of add five seconds at a time, 15 seconds at a time. And it actually what happens is it, it still kind of sucks when you're doing it. But after you're done, I'd say there's like a five or 10 minutes after you're done, you feel this amazing freshness and um, bolus of energy. I, I can't describe it, but you'll know you've done it right. Because like 10 minutes after you're done and you're, you know, going to your next thing or whatever, you will just feel incredibly energetic and just like refreshed. I, I, there's no feeling like it. So it's like it's two minutes. It sucks. For like a good hour after that, we were just like, holy crap, that was awesome. Is it, what, is it, so the um, ice, ice baths are just like 50 degrees, roughly? Is it, um, is it cold, does it, does a cold shower get to 50 degrees? I imagine it's like 65. I don't know. I've, like, I've never measured. Yeah. It's, it's, I, I just do the coldest setting on the shower. Yeah. Turn it all the way down and I just, you know, just embrace it. Yeah. It sounds like it, it, if you were to like min-max it, like at the. At the 65th minute, you might have like a 30, 60 second cold shower and like, uh, and then you have like the next hour of, uh, of effectiveness with the, the, the focus of it. And so you could just add like either have a central a shower that people can jump in kind of like an assembly plant at that time yeah. <laughs> or it's just for you, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, you could, I don't, I, you know, I've told people this, that it's a good idea before. I don't think anyone likes it. So, you know, I would just say that it's, it's two minutes of pain for, you know, a nice payout. But yeah. I understand why people don't do it too, because I I still like find it kind of miserable while I'm doing it. So, but I also know the payout's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, so, um, when you when you read things, is it related to the topic? So in this case, the 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 T cells or anything related to um, deciduous, or is it is it blanket in the sense that you never really know what applies to a future problem you're going to have? That's actually kind of a neat thing. Uh, so is it is it focused when you are feeling that way or when you are yeah. trying to like ground yourself to see some potential in what you're doing or can it be broad? And it, it's always super focused. It's always like, here's, okay. I, do, I would just type in the problem we're having in the mm. Google <laughs> to see like where the papers start sending me. And then the, and you kind of get a cluster. It's kind of like you, you're kind of doing like, I don't know, 
very um coarse data analysis kind of on Google. So you're just kind of like, okay, I typed in this problem. Here are six papers that you know claim to know something about this problem, and they have references in them you can go dig into. So it's always like very hyper focused on what the challenge is, not nothing that's broad. The broad stuff I usually leave for like the lunchtime reading, like when I'm waiting for lunch or you know, like just walking around somewhere or on the plane. So I like to just kind of bone up on my general knowledge all the time. But um, yeah, when things are bad, it's always like just just type the problem in and just see see what you get, see what the the papers say. Because I, I I can't imagine any problem we're having isn't something that people haven't already faced before in this field. Um, most of the time, there are times where it has been that way, which kind of have to figure it out on your own. But you get enough consultants, enough experts around the table, typically you can get there or at least get a plan. Um, so that's how I think about it. Yeah, I think. Uh... If you ever like find the well empty when it comes to the specific field that you're in, I found that like weirdly, if you look at tech or any other industry and you talk to someone, and you say, "Hey, I'm having this type of problem," you'll they'll give you a different perspective on solving it, which is really cool. that's just one of the reasons why I talk to so many different people yeah. um, and I advise so many different startups because it's like you never you never like I could, I was once talking to like a cell egg company and I gave them a strategy that I learned in like an esoteric machine learning technical technical. Uh, more startup and it's like in, in terms of like how they go about their business it's entirely different but then you yeah. apply it in a weird way and it's kind of fun yeah you, i think you're right you know as far as some of them just vocalize the problem it's almost like that's half the half the battle because then people different perspectives will just you know help you just maybe even think about think about the problem more intelligently so yeah i think it's one of those things the more you say sometimes can be helpful because you, you will just get different thought processes that are unique so yeah totally agree so I read in, well, I didn't read, I heard in one of your interviews that you're, you like to be hands-on. And in fact, uh, I, uh, you said something to the effect of like in the, well, you said it earlier in this talk as well. You say that, um, in the beginning, like data looks good, but it's also like when the, when the, when the rubber meets the wheel that, uh, when the, when the rubber meets the, the, the road, you don't say this, cause, you know, this is my way of like summarizing, but, but you also said that you're very hands-on. So I'm curious, let's taking this week in particular, the last couple of weeks, like, what do you, what do you do? Like, what is, what is, what does Robin do? In a hands-on way, yeah, I'd say whatever needs to be done. So I, I, <laughs> I you know, you're a small company, right? So you got to be able, you got to be nimble. You got to be open to growing your skill set. You can't say like I'm here for this and that's what I do. It has to be, you know, the the especially in a in a position like this, you have to be good or knowledgeable about everything. I think that's the the challenge, and you can't you you can't just disavow certain parts of the job or the company because you haven't done it before because you don't want to like they're, they're, that's not an option. So, um, so to answer your question, it really depends on the week. Um, sometimes when we're fundraising, that that's all we we do. We fundraise, talk to investors, due diligence, you know, respond to questions. Um, in times like this, when we're not actively fundraising, it tends to be more about the internal work. So, what does the research look like? What are the timelines? What are the key decisions we have to make around when to progress this molecule or when to pressure test it more? Um, new programs is something I spend a lot of time with. So, you know, how do we want to grow the company? You know, I, I think of biotech as a lot of fun. So I, I'm not a, one of these types who wants to, you know, pump up and flip it as quick as we can. I think of it as like, let's generate as much interesting data as possible and let's keep doing new programs because I think the work is intuitively interesting. So um, within that, I was, my thought process is always like, what else can we generate here in these models that, that are compelling um, to the world? And then what other new programs can we create that are also going to be compelling? Um, so that's part of it, you know, partnerships with pharma and discussion with them is always on the table. Um, some business development stuff here and there. Um, spending time with the team to see how they're doing, you know, see how their growth is coming along. You know, I've learned 
the hard way, you know, I think you really need to understand every team member's why to, to make sure they're fully engaged. You know, I think if you understand the, if you can get them inspired on their why, they tend to produce great work. They tend to be happy. They tend to, you know, all, all the challenges with, with employees, especially in startups can kind of be abated by understanding what they're really there for. Um, so, you know, I, so I really spread a, a lot of different activities every day, depending on what I think is necessary. Um, and I'm really not moored into um, traditional um, job descriptions. So I, I tend to think of it as, you know, whatever needs to be done is what I'll do. Yeah. And I think that's uh, some that like very effective leaders spend some like in the beginning when they get to know people, they spend a, a component of their time just aligning interest where mm-hmm. I think a, a lot of times well-meaning people that maybe haven't learned that that ability yet they, they struggle a lot and i have you know sometimes they're like oh it's all it's this person's fault because they didn't tell me it's like how 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 much <clears throat> listening did you do yeah. you know like uh and stuff like that and it comes down to like uh even hiring you know like are you listening to the candidates and stuff because yeah. m- more often than not people tell you what they who they are like most people are not you know uh closet sociopaths that hide <laughs> who, who they are <laughs> as they yeah. go through their lives yeah, um I think, the, I think the goal is you know you want people to be excited about the work they're doing, right? If if you can get them there, they can get themselves there, then the results will follow. And it, it always happens that way. But if they're not excited about the work, it's 50-50 whether or not you see results. I, I try to spend time on that with everybody. Um, you know, and those things also evolve over time. You know, people's considerations when they join on day one versus what it might be three years later after having a family, or it can change. So I think you have to be nimble and run towards their their changes and, and in your mind be open to the fact that what they were there for on day one may be different than what they're there for by year three. So hmm. I try to stay close to that. Um, the other thing is, you know, I, one of the often complaints I hear about CEOs from other board members is, is that the CEO is like asleep at the wheel and they don't know what's going on. So I think part yeah. of it is like, I don't want them to ever say that about me. I want them to be like, you know, so I am hands-on and like everything that's going on um, for that reason. I want to know, you know, I never wanted to come across like I'm not sure what is happening in my own company. So, you know, I try to have my ear to the ground as much as I can without trying to get in people's way. Um, so that, yeah, it's a delicate line to walk, but I think being informed, being knowledgeable is is part of the job. Mm-hmm. And uh, diving into uh, the research that we've been kind of like hinting at so far, um, how do you how do you focus on developing one to the end while also developing potential other opportunities with the data in parallel? Yeah. So let's think first about why you would want to do this, right? So that there's one approach is, hey, we're going to do one mechanism, one one drug, and that's going to be our company. Um, the risk with that is um, that if it doesn't work, then your company has, you know, is done, right? Just bluntly, that's what it is. So the downside of that, of, of then spinning out into multiple programs is that, are you focused enough? Are you putting enough resources on each program to actually get results? So you have to, you have to walk that line. Um, and it can be done. I would say you just have to think about it, you know, very thoughtfully and also be, you know, if you're going to fail, fail fast, right? That's the old adage. Um, so for me, I try to stay on mission with a company, you know, we're a company that understands how the immune system can ablate senescent cells um, very effectively in order to resolve disease. But that that idea can be spun into multiple different immune targets. If you think about it, there's not only one immune cell. We think there's one immune cell that really controls us, you know, from the neck down, but it could be a different immune cell type in the brain. So you kind of stay on mission, but then you start thinking about how else can this platform be applied to different set of indications that our first program doesn't touch. Um, so within that, then you got to think about what are the experiments and what the resources you need to get to the various go, no goes along the way and how much will it cost, how much time will it take? 
and then just just have the guts you know if it's not looking good just say just cut and run right because you don't want to sink time into it when it's not progressing so that's how i think about it um I'm like but like i said you know a couple of minutes ago i think it's it's intriguing the work we are doing so you always there's always more you want to do it's kind of like if you go to a restaurant and you have a really good entree you kind of want to come back the next day and have the next entree right it's like you know there's this temptation to kind of because you enjoyed it so much you're like we could keep doing this and this would be really interesting and we could keep looking at new targets um within reason at some point you get overstuffed right so you have to like know when to cut it off but like i said i think this is kind of as a, as a game um in that the work is so fascinating and so impactful that you kind of want to keep playing you know you don't want to just hitch it on one idea and make that the only thing you do is there i'm thinking of the time that uh apple received job rejoined they had so much going on but they were like burning themselves into the uh to the ground then you focus on four different quadrants of like of, of products. How how do you know when to cut it off? Like how do you, you know when? Hey, this is enough. Maybe we reach like the maximum local maximum for the the team that we have. Yeah, um, I would say when the biology just doesn't doesn't cooperate, right? So sometimes, mm-hmm. so I tell the team all the time, it doesn't matter if we if we fail because the biology doesn't cooperate, we can live with that. Um, th- that's okay. If we're failing because we're not doing things properly we can't live with that. So I, I, that's how I look at it as, you know, did we do good work to elucidate data that's, that's real? If the data that's real says, Hey, this is not a good idea. Like it's not really impactful. Fine. You know, it, it sucks, but you know, you can live with that. If the data we generate suggests that we didn't run good studies, then I've got a problem. Then we would keep going or find a different way to resource it or find more people to put on it or, or whatever we need to do. But I think you have to get to an answer. Um, it's kind of like any relationship, right? So, I mean, sometimes you just want to know, like, is this going somewhere or is it not? But you just need to be very clear about, you know, this way or that way, right? So I think if we can generate data and we know that the the work was done properly, the biology just doesn't isn't there, then you know that's fine. And then, um, so jumping into the the T cells themselves, I, I've yeah. been generally curious. So as we age, our, our immune system gets slower. I, I I agree with you guys' approach in that, you know. There are people that make things that go into the body to compensate for what the body can't do, but we have such, we have uh, millions of years of evolution in our immune system. It's so intricate in what it can do. Um, I mean, just like mRNA vaccines just come in and like teach our, you know, our body new things all the time, which is really cool. Uh, so what, so I, I would imagine it's the senescent cells that build up that slow down the T cells, or what do you think gets them to the point where they're no longer functioning? And, you know, in that vein, when you administer your, uh, a dosage, you guys talk about like, you might have something like quarterly in terms of like, cause it eventually goes back down. Why does it, in the sense of like a, like a pluripotent or a Yamanaka factor, it doesn't like reset it back to like, Hey, I'm, I'm youthful and alive. It kind of like gives them like a little shot of steroids almost to make them buff again. And then they have to like, you know, get that again. So I'm curious, like what, what do you think makes them go down? And then, um. And it was in a similar vein, it probably explains like why you need to like do it so many times. Yeah. So yeah, so let's break it down um step by step here, right? So the the idea is that in disease, the senescent cells start to accumulate. In in our case, the natural killer T cells that we've identified as being re- responsible for the removal of senescent cells don't respond as actively or as proficiently as we need them to in the case of disease or senescence accumulation. So something is happening where the NKT cells 
which would normally keep these senescent cells at bay, um, aren't able to respond at a level that meets the demand of senescent cell accumulation. So the question is, what is happening between the NKT cell and senescent cell connection that's dysfunctioning or becoming dysfunctional that's causing the, allowing for the accumulation of senescent cells? So um, it's a couple things. Um, and in some of this is unpublished. I'm going to be um, educational without being overly specific, but there, there's a signal that senescent cells elicit um, give off that basically blocks the NKT cells from functioning as effectively as they should. So that's one. Um, and so the solution can be one block what they are eliciting um, in order so the NKT cells don't need to be simulated but can still now see them. So whatever that mass they're putting over there, their presence is removed. Um, the challenge with that approach is that their mask that they're using is not specific to senescent cells. They, so they're also, that's also expressed by good, healthy cells. So to, to target that specifically can be a challenge. Um, so the approach that we use is around, we know that if you get enough NKT cells going, and, and you don't need a lot more, you just need them, you need them to kind of just wake up and, as you said, become more buff. Um, when we wake them up, we proliferate them. So you see kind of these basal levels of NKT function that when we drug them, they become two to three X more active. So there's two to three X more in the population after we drug them. And when we wake them up, they now have enough for that, whatever this nest cell use, is using to, to block them is overcome because of the volume of, of NKT cells we have um, now through the drug. Um, now the challenge could be then if, are you overactivating NKT cells? Are you making them too, you know, too mobilized, too, you know, too buff? And um, so the, the response to that is, you know, when we activate them, um, these drugs actually only activate them transiently. So we see a, a spike in their activity by day four, but that activity is back down to normal basal levels by day seven to 10. So it's kind of like we we wake them up for the party and once the party's over, they go back to a sleeping state. And so we don't see any off-target toxicity or any off-target cytokine effects from that kind of simple nudge. It's more of a nudge rather than a full-blown, you know, you know, rave, if you will. Um, so they kind of wake them up, they go, they peak around day four, and then by day seven to day 10, it's back to where it was before. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's all about having the right drug to do that. That makes sense. And um, are they are they doing any work? Do the, the T-cells do any senescent removal work already, and there's just like too much of a buildup of senescent cells? Or are they like completely like change blindness, they don't realize there's a shirt in front of them? Yeah, I think of it like a like a like a balance beam of sorts. So mm. as senescent cells accumulate, the NKT cells don't always increase the response and relations. You yeah. have this accumulation, and then as you have accumulation, the senescent cells tend to mass themselves from the NKT cells. The NKT cells go, okay, there's oh, there's nothing here, nothing here, nothing here. We're going to kind of downregulate, and then we come along and say, hey, something's going on here. We need to get you back here. And so the small molecules that we've designed will do that. So it's it's kind of like it, it becomes a Sort of some of a positive feedback loop where the accumulation is going up, and that accumulation almost makes the NKT cells even more energetic and actually suppresses them in terms of their volume. So we've shown some of the data sets we have that you know in, in a metabolic disease model, the NKT cells in the animals that have metabolic disease are suppressed versus their age match controls. So they've they've basically been reduced and they need to be increased. And so therapeutically, we can increase them. And uh, metabolic—that's the type two diabetes in the research on your website. Um, yeah. I, I was concerned about, I, I was uh, interested in uh, diving into that one because the, the fibrosis, 
fibrosis one, if I remember the other one, a part of that, that study, uh, that one looked pretty, pretty clean in terms of like things are so much better. The, um, the, the, the diabetes type two one was, uh, and maybe I just don't have the smarts to understand it, but like they were artificially given, like they basically fattened them up so they would have the problem. And then they gave it, they administered, uh, the, a dosage to like normalize back to what they would be if they weren't, you know, have, you know, that big. And yeah. so I wonder if, um, like, does it resolve the disease itself or does it just bring it back to like a normal, normal, uh, where they were before like the plumping, if that makes sense. Like, is it, is it, is it removing the senescent cells that were artificially there because they got bigger or, um, or is it doing that and causing, um, uh, a reaction to, uh, 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 the diabetes itself. That makes yeah. sense. So, yes, we, let's go through the models, right? So the, the model is a four-month model. So it's actually quite long, right? So it's four months, this high-fat, high-fructose American diet, for lack of a better term, right? So you, you put these mice on the diet. They, instead of weighing 25 grams, they end up weighing about 50 to 55 grams. So they're twice the weight of a normal mouse. They get senescent cells accumulation in the adipose tissue. So in the fat tissue, they become very senescent. Um, they get systemic metabolic disease. They become glucose intolerant. They have high insulin resistance. Um, and so when we give them the drug after four months of the diet, what happens is one, we ablate the senescent cells in the adipose tissue, almost back down to control levels, right? So now you have these still plump, overweight mice, but now they don't have senescence accumulation in the fat. And what that, uh, what that culminates in is a the mice become far less insulin resistant. So you see the insulin resistance curves goes back to a normal age match control level. Um, and what that feeds into is then when you give the mice a bolus or a challenge of glucose, um, they can then metabolize that glucose as though they were normal, healthy mice that were half the weight. So the mice don't lose a lot of weight on this approach. They lose a small amount of weight sometimes, but it's not driven by weight loss, which is probably the more realistic um, view on, on human disease. And what happens is that we've taking these mice that are still plump and overweight, but now we've made them basically taken away a massive source of inflammation for them. And yeah. when we do that, they become very um, much more capable of actually metabolizing glucose. Um, HbA1c levels are also affected um, significantly in these mice, which is one of the key diabetes readouts. So you see really nice improvements all the way through the metabolic panel from doing this. So the mice still kind of remain large and, and out of shape, you know, by appearance, but metabolically they become basically normal once again. Now you would go back and have to repeat this every few months. So it doesn't, the effect from the one treatment doesn't last forever. It is a durable effect. You know, you see the effect out well over a month, you'll see the same impact on the animals despite staying on the disease. But, you know, you would go back in, you know, two or three months later and give another dose because um, it might stay on the diet in the study. Would there be any difference in if there were mice that were specifically bred to have diabetes versus that were artificially given diabetes in uh, terms of the effect of the the Yes, we we've we actually have published before in a different study where we mm. do um, type one diabetes mice. So these are what are called NOD mice, non-obese diabetic mice. These are like type one diabetics. So type one diabetes is different than type two, right? So type one is typically genetic or typically has you know a juvenile component to it, where people will you know they lose their ability to produce enough insulin to to uh, meet glucose demand. Um, type two tends to be more lifestyle induced, right? Tend to get it when you're older. Um, you know, in your 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, where you are, because your lifestyle, typically you don't metabolize, you have too much glucose and your insulin um, production isn't enough to meet the needs. So it's kind of, it culminates kind of in the same way, but it's one is kind of 
I'd say kind of faultless type one, and then one is kind of, you know, to lead through lifestyle, which is type two. Um, so in type one mice and the NOD mice, what we've seen with a different approach is that if you remove is that, is that, uh, the beta cells, the also become senescent in those mice. And if you remove the senescent beta cells with, with a senolytic or with an NKT approach, you can actually prevent those mice from progressing towards type one diabetes. So it's more of a prevention strategy in type one diabetes when it's transgenic and more, you know, kind of bred to be that way versus one where you induce it via diet. Hmm. That's interesting. Do, um, do the T cells or does the body in any way respond other than the positive ways we're talking about to, um, these interventions in the sense that do they, does it, do they ever get like any resistance to it? If that makes sense. Yeah, they can be if you dose too frequently, there can be resistance. Um, okay. now the beauty of it is that you don't need to dose very frequently because the potency is so good. Um, one and then two, because when you remove senescent cells effectively, they tend not to repopulate for about six weeks. So biologically, it takes about six weeks for a cell to go from you know cell cycle rest to actually becoming senescent. And so if you if you remove them all on say day zero, you typically and then you continue the the diet or the injury or whatever it is. Um, it simply will take about six more weeks for the cells to actually come back and have a presence again. So um, when you're using the right mechanism, it's very powerful because you don't need to dose very frequently. And if you did, it probably just, you know, you're just kind of, it's like, it's like hammering at a wall. It's already been knocked down. So you have to wait for it to kind of build back up again and then go again. So um, it doesn't, nothing that you do affects the T cells where they're made. It's kind of like as they're in transit that they get like this boosting to their thing. So it doesn't, it doesn't affect like their, like their, their production. That makes sense. So it's not like um, the way I think of it, it's like if it, in my mind, I guess you could probably do it in both ways. I'm not a scientist, so I, I just ask questions. But the um, if if it was administered to the T cell where it was being made, and maybe it affected the way it was made moving forward, maybe they would stop. Um, maybe because I imagine it takes more energy and all these other things. And at a certain point, nature likes to have some type of homeostasis in terms of how they do things. Yeah. I, I'm just kind of wondering if um, if there would be any way for the T cells, whether and where they were being made or in transit, which it sounds like where how you do it now, where they would actually start not feet like not you know they get um resistant to the steroids i guess would be yeah, yeah i mean i think the, the, the t-cells also kind of cycle through right so like the t-cells you activate mm -hmm. the first time will be the t-cells you activate the second time so you know you you activate a small portion of the tissue resident natural killer t-cells they wake up they do a job and then when they're done with the job they, they down regulate and go back into a resting state and then you know eventually the, the next time you stimulate you're probably not stimulating the same NKT cells okay. probably be a different one. So you don't need a lot of activation of NKT cells to see an effect. It's more like a, like I said, it's kind of like a, it's kind of like they're lightly blindfolded and you just, you just kind of need to nudge them in the right direction. Um, so it, what I'll keep coming back to is when you, when you understand how nature intended for this to happen, the biology tends to work itself out in a pretty elegant way that no human can actually control or needs to control. And that's the difference I think between our approach with immunotherapies versus other approaches where, which are more artificial if you think about it. It's more like, Typically, you're going to block a kinase, block a receptor, block an enzyme, activate any one of those three, and you see an effect. This is just saying, look, like these cells are already there. They already know what to do. We're just going to give them that little nudge they need to overcome the hurdle of not seeing the senescent cells. When they downregulate, do they remember to see them? If um, well, They don't forget because they have a natural, they have a, they have a mechanism by which they recognize each other. Um, but I, I, I don't know if it's, you know, if you're, I don't know how the memory capabilities of the cells, um, in this case, I think are not, 
are not um, relevant just because they they have receptors on on their surface that recognize the same the corresponding receptor on the senescent cell surface. So, like I said, it's more about you know I think just knowing the cell type to activate it and to be able to drug it specifically, which we can do. Yeah, I, I was I was wondering if like you know the, you drug them, they they act in the area that you want them to act in, but then when they get downregulated and they get filtered somewhere else, if they are then brought online in the future, if they don't like start doing a little bit more shoveling for the senescent mm -hmm. cells, and yeah. you just it's not. I know how to even like test for that or, or watch for it. I was just kind of curious. Yeah, yeah I, I don't know either. It hasn't it hasn't come up in as as an idiot in any of our studies, but yeah, I think I think probably the core question is, is how frequently you have to stimulate them, and it, and it looks like that the result will be every two to three months you'll give a dose of the drug. Yeah, and then uh, so I know several people that uh, at a certain point when they when they age they get put on drugs. Well, they get on one drug, and then they're given another drug to counteract the side effects of the first drug, and then they, they're given a third drug to counteract the side effects of both those drugs interacting. And yeah. so, uh, what concerns are with that type of, uh, you know, I don't know, hurricane of things that happen to people, unfortunately, with what you're developing? Yeah, that's a good question, right? So the question is, you know, if you if they're already on a drug for pulmonary fibrosis, we put them on this. Do they interact and really cause havoc um, in a one plus one equals four situation? Um, yeah. Yeah, so it's a good question. It's kind of actually an age-old biotech question. Um, I look at it as, you know, your drug needs to have monotherapy efficacy, right? So this idea that you can do a combo therapy, and because of this drug, because of the existing drug, you add a new drug to it, and then the two drugs together is, is better than any one individually. I don't think that plays long-term. I think is I think you need to be able to stand on your own and have, have efficacy by yourself. Um, and the goal is to have this approach replace, not work in combination with other drugs. So we think in our model so far in the data we've we published that it shows that as a monotherapy, it can be incredibly effective. Um, if it ends up having to be a combo therapy, I think that's gonna, that could be a challenge. Depends then on the indication. It gets very specific as to what the challenges could be. Um, we don't see a lot of, uh, we don't see a ton of interaction yet because the one is we can activate our target very, very specifically. It's got a unique receptor that we can act on. And two, it tends to be a single dose, a low dose, and very transient. So I don't anticipate that being an issue if it ends up having to be combo therapy, but that's the kind of thing where you'd have to test it to know for sure. Um, but also the pathways that we're using are very different and unique from the pathways that the current standard of care would use. So I, I don't think that's going to be a huge issue for us if we come up on it. But like I said, I think for success, I think you need to be monotherapy efficacy and not rely upon you know something else boosting your efficacy. Yeah. Outside of efficacy, I, I was uh, wondering in, in the terms of like, if you were being traded for something going on with your kidneys and you're uh, targeting, you know, the lungs, and they're not like the, the, the kidneys are not designed to do anything with the lungs. So it's not like the, the dual, they're just kind of like in the body at the same time. How do you account for that? Um, sorry, say it one more time. Yeah. So like, um, if this is a stupid question, you just let me know. But like, if, if you, if instead of like having like your drug and another drug administered to have the, the effect that you want in the lungs, for instance, if you instead had like a person was having a uh, liver pro kidney problems, so you're, I'm taking a drug for my kidney and then we're also doing stuff with my lungs, um, at the same time just happens to be going on and I'm taking both drugs at the same time. Um, they're not enhancing each other. They're not designed to hand each other. I'm yeah. just happened to be on them. Then how, how is that studied? Uh, yeah, it's a good question. I think it's, it's probably studied first by themselves to see, like, see if you, you set a baseline, right? So this drug 
our drug, the NKT activator, does this as a monotherapy. And then you look at the other drug and it goes, okay, that, that's a kidney therapy. It does this by itself. And then you try them together and say, okay, what's different now in the biomarkers of and the safety biomarkers of relevance? That's how you would study it and think about it. Um, yeah, you know, beyond that, I think you probably think about clearance, right? So most of these drugs are probably actually cleared through the kidney. So that's typically like renal or liberal or renal or hepatic clearance is, is pretty standard for most of these drugs. So I think that's probably where you'd see something unique if you saw anything at all. Um, so I think you'd probably study clearance as a backdrop against um, any any drug to drug interactions you might be having. Yeah, I, well, I remember this like TED talk, and maybe it was so long ago that's no longer an issue. But they were studying those type of interactions through Google searches, so they would see like like you know this type of this drug and this drug side effects, and then they would see like oh, okay something's happening here. So they use like Google search and analytics to gather data to see like how different drugs were interacting because mm -hmm. they weren't they weren't like a, a clinical trial to de determine that type of stuff. So I'm always kind of curious like. Uh, I mean, uh, about that type of thing because I know I know a lot of people that they just started like this death spiral of like one who does this and then does this and does this it's <laughs> like no one's how to solve it it's like why don't you just start taking one off slowly and that's it, in many of the cases that's what they started doing and then they just focus on the heart waiting for that to get better then they focus on blah 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 but I uh, know not everyone can have that uh, luxury depending on their issues but uh, yeah just something I think about um, then I, I know we want to talk about some research I think we've been peppering it in here but at, at the same time I want to make sure you know you have some cool stuff to talk about yeah, and I don't want to miss it. So, uh, what's what's the cool stuff with research? Yeah. Um, do you want to just give me kind of an overview of the data? Sure. Yeah, I love data. I love numbers. Yeah. So, uh, I guess the two critical pieces here I should mention, right? So, one is how do you identify NKT cells as being responsible for senescence removal, and then what does the data show that proves it is actually useful, right? So, so the first data set we we um, that we formed the company on was we actually isolated senescent cells from different disease tissues. We took senescent cells from lung tissue, from diabetic pancreatic tissue, from T2D metabolic tissue. So we isolate those senescent cells, we pull them out of those systems. And then we did something called single cell RNA sequencing to basically look at what they're expressing that's unique, right? So you want to understand their, their transcriptional expression profiles and see what's different about senescent cells from disease tissue versus normal healthy cells from the same tissue. And what we learned was that these senescent cells from disease tissue tend to overexpress a surface receptor called CD1D. And CD1D is interesting because CD1D is a typically known because it's a, it's a type of antigen presenting cell. But what's interesting about it is that, so antigen presenting cells basically do exactly what it sounds like. And they take antigens, they take, you know, kind of disease uh, molecules or, or something, right? And they, and they, express and they kind of, and they present it, right? They kind of say, here's something I found that's interesting, that's pathological, and we're gonna, we're gonna show it to, you know, a certain immune cell type or certain other um, um, cell type that, of interest. Um, what's unique about CD1D antigen presenting cell types is that they only show antigens to NKT cells. So it's this very high fidelity immune marriage. So it's basically like, mm -hmm. like penguins, like, they only talk to each other, right? So these CD1D APCs pick up these antigens and they go, okay, I'm only gonna show this to a NKT cell. That's my only interest is I'm only gonna talk to that NKT cell. And so when you understand that CD1D is upregulated on senescent cells, the first connection you make is there's something with a natural killer T cell here potentially in play. And so we knew that when we started the company, that was kind of the first, I was like, okay, there's something here with the immune system that could be interesting. 
So that was step one. Step two, which has been even more exciting is, so what happens when you reactivate the NKT cells? Because we know the NKT cells become energic with time and with age and with disease. And so what happens, as I said before, you know, when you have these senescent cells accumulating. And so if you reactivate an NKT cell, what, what happens? And so in the data that we published, we'll show if you give a single dose to activate NKT cells, they will clear senescent cells in four days, basically back down to, to almost nothing, right? And there's some noise in the system, right? So you're not, so it's sometimes in some, you know, sometimes in something a small population still existing, um, but you basically will ablate senescent cells completely in four days. Um, and that's from a single dose. Now, the reason it actually matters is because when you do that, it resolves disease too. So it's not about, it's not about activating NKT cells, it's not about removing senescent cells, it's about what happens to disease endpoints that are tractable to the clinic and indications that matter. And so in the metabolic disease model, we show that when we do this, we ablate senescent cells, but we also normalize blood glucose tolerance. We reduce insulin resistance. We improve HbA1c levels. Um, in the pulmonary fibrosis model, we show that we can ablate or attenuate um, uh, pleiotropic cytokines like IL-17A. Um, TNF-alpha gets um, knocked down almost completely. Fibrosis is halted back to normal levels. So we see there either is stopping or reversal fibrosis. You know, it depends on how you interpret the model. So I'm comfortable saying you can halt fibrosis. Um, and some people might look at it and say you can actually reverse it. Um, but you see like a complete shutoff of fibrosis in these animals that are, you know, would normally either die or, or be, develop severe fibrosis, um, you know, at that time versus, versus control levels. So that's what happens with a single dose. That's why, that's ultimately why I was saying, you know, when you follow nature, understand that senescence is driving a number of diseases, if you can cut that off and remove these cells, um, the effect and the impact is really quite striking. So it's not just it's not just a more efficacious way to think about treating diseases. It's also a different pill regimen where you're talking about a single dose every couple of months versus taking three to six pills a day. So that that's how it shifts the paradigm for um, different age-related diseases. It, I, I can see how it'll affect uh, health span, which I assume will have some effect on your lifespan because if you're living healthy, you probably will live longer. Yeah. Is there a part of these studies, to the extent you can talk about it, are there effects in terms of the lifespan of the animals as well? We don't study that just because it's not relevant mm. to any clinical study we want to do. Mm. So we haven't um we haven't looked at that yet. You know the data would suggest yes, you know, based on other people who've removed stats and cells with other approaches, you know, you show kind of a about a 10% improvement in, in lifespan. Um, but truthfully, you know, there's no study in, in the clinic that actually tracks to health to lifespan or even health span yet. So it's just not something that we put resources on. Um, we we focus on things we actually can do in the clinic that are tractable. Um, what you're mentioning is interesting and, and compelling, but you know, you've got to pick your poison on how you want to deploy your people. So we yeah. try to focus on things we can actually do in the clinic, not things that are, you know, just interesting to talk about. Are the um are bioaging clocks the stuff that people are developing with biomarkers? They're are they not useful in the clinical setting? Well, I don't know if they're validated yet. I think that's the issue, right? Mm -hmm. So it's it's preclinically interesting, compelling. Um, it's all all the things you'd want to talk about over a beer and coffee with anyone in the field. But I don't I don't know if the I don't know if the FDA yet um, has recognized it as being clinically validated. It's so I think that's you know we'll wait for that to happen. Um, but again, you know, I, I really I try to bring the focus all the way back to like tractable quantitative disease endpoints. I think the biological clocks are cool. And I think you you could have no shortage of discussion around them. I'm just saying that, you know, at the end of the day, either you're treating pulmonary fibrosis, you're treating kidney disease, you're treating brain disorders, you're treating dementia quantitatively, or you're not. And yeah. 
that's the data you actually need. Yeah, I, I, I have somewhat of a vision for health span and lifespan where there's this great science fiction novel series called The Commonwealth, where basically people every now and again would go into like these like little machine things. They would just be rejuvenated, like they'd get you know the T cells boosted so they can take out the senescence and stuff. It was like in that universe for for a long time, people didn't have a cure for Alzheimer's. They just removed the components that would lead to Alzheimer's and reverse them with reju rejuvenation. Or in your in this case, like you know, st steroid up the the T cells so they can take out the senescence so they can have improved uh, fibrosis and improved uh, effects on um on a uh, uh, type two diabetes. Um, I don't. How do you see the future playing out? Not in science fiction, but in a in a in a uh, qualitative way. Yeah, that's a good question. So um, I see it as you know, step one is prove your drug works quantitatively mm -hmm. and irrefutably, right? And that's you know, you, you know, lots of indications are kind of open to you know, patient reported outcomes or um, subjective um, analysis based on the biomarkers that you have or don't have. So I'd say, you know, we try to focus on indications where it's just, it's quantitative and, and there's no discussion around, is it working or not? And that's step one. So I think if you show quantitative improvements in a way that's a current, that's a huge advantage over current center of care, I think that's step one to winning. Um, step two, I think then becomes showing a good safety profile, right? So if you were to give this drug, but there was no overt signs of disease, is it going to hurt them, right? Because if if it, if they don't have any significant disease, you're giving them a drug and there's some kind of side effect that's nasty, then what's the point, right? Then you're treating something that may not exist. Um, so if, I think if you pass that second bar, then I think it, then I think it really gets interesting, right? So then you have a drug that's safe, um, that even if you give it to a healthy patient or quote unquote healthy and they don't have disease, you know, can you do preventative care? So I think that's the third bar, which I think is probably the most compelling to talk about what will take time for any drug is can you administer this early enough to prevent people from progressing towards certain diseases? So that'd be a long, you know, massive longitudinal study over you know, 10 years to prove that out with a lot of patients. But ultimately that's where the field should want to go. It's good for payers. It's good for people. It's good for um, reimbursements, good for the healthcare system. It's good for everybody, but it'll just take some time because you have to clear the first two parts first and then go into the third, which is preventative healthcare. How does that differ from the other startups or uh, businesses or companies that are developing in the, the, uh, similar analytics, like maybe not specifically on the t-cells that you're working on but yeah. that that approach you see other people going about, about it a different way yeah everyone has kind of a different thought process around this side and yeah. a lot of them are my good friends so I, i'm not going to speak to their work specifically i'll let them talk about their own work and they're, they're the experts i would say that you know the traditional approach in the field has been you look at a senescent cell and the issue is not that a cell becomes senescent the issue is that the senescent cell cannot be removed Right. So it's, it's not that its existence um, will make other cells in the microenvironment also become senescent. And that's a problem. So it kind of propagates itself by it's like just being close to their good healthy cells. And so typically what people have done is they look at senescent cells, they go, okay, there's there's a reason it's not getting removed. It, it's the senescent cell is upregulated some anti-apoptotic pathway. So there's some pathway that it's it's overexpressing that's preventing it from basically going towards apoptosis or, or cell death. And so what people have typically have done is they go, okay, we've identified that anti-apoptotic pathway and we inhibit it, meaning that we now open the pathway again for apoptosis. Um, the issue with that is that that anti-apoptotic pathway that they're hitting that pushes that senescent cell towards cell death 
also exists in good, healthy cells. So it's kind of like the chemo effect. It's like you're going to kill yeah. bad senescent cells, but you're also going to kill a whole bunch of healthy cells that have that same pathway overexpressed. But now that you're hitting it, you're going to kill both good cells and bad cells. So you know, examples are senescent cells tend to um, overexpress beta-gal um, and tend to express P16. Um, beta-gal is also an immune cell. So if you kill beta-gal positive senescent cells, you also kill beta-gal positive immune cells, which you don't want to do. Uh, P16 is also in neurons and pancreatic beta cells. So you might you might kill P16 positive senescent cells. You're also going to kill P16 positive neurons and P16 positive um, beta cells. So that that's the downside, but it, it does work for generating efficacy. You will you will resolve disease in animals by doing this, but the off-target effects, the safety effects, no one talks about those, and that's why you've seen a lot of these programs be interesting and published in the literature. But they don't they tend not to make it past in vivo POC because they um, run into big tox effects. Um, the approach we use is, is radically different. We, we've thought about this from the ground up, from first principles, and our approach basically says, look, there's a way nature intended for this to happen, and we need to figure that out. So that's, that's what we've done as a company is we actually have figured out how nature can do this through the immune system. Well, so everyone knows that the immune system is responsible for this. <laughs> no one really understood, I think, until we published um, not too long ago that how the immune system does this. And then the next step, obviously, was now that we understand that natural killer T cells can can remove pathological senescent cells, um, how do we reactivate and reharness that system to work again when they stop, you know, stop doing their job? So it's just a very different approach to the problem. I think most companies have kind of thought of it as kind of an evolutionary, like here's a here's an anti-apoptotic pathway, here's a better one, here's another one. Like, you know, it's kind of like evolutionary. We look at it just like <clears throat> need to revolutionize by thinking about the immune system in the natural way, not about you know, ways to kind of shortcut the problem. Um, it, is there a larger platform that you're developing in terms of, I know you're, you're finding other applications of, I imagine T cells into different, you know, disease tissues, but is there a, a larger platform that you're, if you're, if the goal isn't to like bloat it and then flip it to like Roche or something like that, and maybe, you know, build your own Roche empire, <laughs> you know, I don't know. Um, there's gotta be, imagine like some, something of a platform that gets developed either in conjunction or outside of uh, T-cells. So I'm just curious, like, what are your thoughts on, on that? Yeah, absolutely. So so the NKT approach seems to work in every scenario if we've tried it in so far, but we think it's probably limited to things that are neck down. And so um, we think how this happens in the brain is probably going to be different, different immune cell type. It might go, instead of activating immune cells, it might be down-related immune cells. You know, there could be a different kind of same premise, same mission, but different approach completely. So that's something we're investigating right now. It's early and it's unpublished. I can't say more than what I just said, but it's, it is something on my mind um, that, you know, if you can understand how this happens in the brain, it will likely be impactful, not for just one CNS disorder, one dementia, but probably for three to four at least. So, you know, there's, there's some common mechanisms in the brain, you know, the CNS is, is, is typically challenging for startups. You know, everyone says it's too hard to work on, blah, blah, blah. I, I don't buy that argument. I just think that CNS actually, it is challenging in terms of drug delivery. It's, it's challenging is that, you know, people have failed there a lot, but actually what it gives you is that typically there's common mechanisms across different types of dementia that if you get one right, you're probably going to get three or four right as a result. And so that's the next, next uh, approach we're going to think about. How do you, um, I'm curious, like your thought process on mapping things out when, you know, like the Alzheimer's, for instance, there was like some drama a couple months ago or a year ago. Uh, timelines are weird. In my head every day feels like a lifetime 
But yeah. um, like it changed the landscape in terms of like what were the actual things that were causing Alzheimer's, like the, the, the hypothesis around them. Um, and at the same time, I think there's uh, some studies that have come out that a lot of research isn't uh, reproducible, even if you have like the same conditions, like they don't come out the same way. Yeah. Um, so then if you're reading these papers and you're making, um, you know, value-based decisions off of them, how yeah. do you know you're going to be sure-footed as you move forward? Yeah, you, you never know until you know, right? So it's kind of like, you yeah, know, okay. you to, uh, I, I think the way you, you address it up front is by understanding what research is real and what is not. Um, mm. that, that's one thing. And there's certain people in the field that you would trust in their data and when, what they tell you. Um, the other way to think about it is, you know, the the volume of data you can generate and analyze now is different than what it was 10 years ago. So you can do single cell analyses of of dementia patients right now. And that'll tell you something that's, you'll you look for common trends where it's not, you know, I think part of the, Alzheimer's part of the dementia challenge has been a lot of it's based on behavioral assays that are quite subjective in PROs or patient reported outcomes. And so you have um, kind of this inherent noise in the system already. And so we don't, we don't look at it that way. We look at it as like, you know, here's the, here's data from actual patients. That's biological data. Not, not somebody that said like, I feel better because I took this sugar pill or this, you know, Alzheimer's drug. We look at, you know, single cell data from actual patients who are confirmed to have these diseases and we look at what's different in them versus what's different than a normal patient that's, you know, half the age. So once you have that, and there's a lot of data like that already available, you just have to know how to, you just have to know how to sequence it, how to analyze it, and how to, how to um, actually understand targets um, as a result of that data. So we think of it from that perspective, you know, let's, let's not focus on what people have tried before. Let's not focus on behavioral assays. Let's focus on actual, you know, large data sets that will clearly show you a trend or not. And within that trend, you've got to be able to figure out, you know, what's druggable and what's not. And then within what's druggable, you've got to show that if it is druggable, it actually has an effect that's quantitative and irrefutable and not behavioral and, you know, up for debate. It sounds like it's trust but verify. Um, you know, you, you look at the stuff and then you go through and make sure it's it's right. And then, you know, you anytime it doesn't work out, you can <clears throat> assess from there. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. Um, so now I know we're uh, coming to the end. I want to be respectful of your time. Um, the, what are some books you recommend people check out? Um, it, like if, I guess if you could like subject everyone this Saturday to some books to read and they have to read them and I will read them, you know, yeah. I read everything that people recommend. Fortunately or unfortunately, depending. Yeah. Um, it's not a biotech book, but I'll, I'll tell you one book that kind of changed my thinking, um, was the 50th law. Ah, by 50 with 50 cent and uh, Robert Greene. I'm staring sure. at it it's right there. Yeah, good. So, you know, um, I think so much of what we do in life is is typically can be guided by fear. Fear of what might happen, fear of ourselves, fear of reactions. And I think life is better lived when we can just peel off a layer of our fear and play to win and be aggressive and, you know, think about the best possible outcomes. Um, I can tell you one reason why I have a job. It's probably that I don't I don't live in my fears. I don't um, you know, I don't think about what can go wrong as like a primary consideration. I think about what can go right first. And that book is something that just changed my thinking. I think I read it sometime really like 2011, 2012, something like that. So it was before I did my first startup, actually before I led my first company. And I realized, you know, at that point I was in private equity, I'd be kind of um inhibited by fear by, you know, like here's all the things that can go wrong and not go well and blah, 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 blah. blah and here's why it's not gonna work. And I read that book and I was like, oh my God, like, you know, I've, I've been wasting years of my life 
thinking about what's not going to go well rather than just, you know, you know, inventing my future versus predicting it. And so, you know, the 50th law is all about like disavowing of your fears. It's really powerful. So it's more of a mindset shift book than anything else. It's not about it's not, nothing to do with biotech. But I think once you unencumber your mind, it's pretty incredible what can actually happen. So, um, I, and I think honestly, I think the reason I have a job is because I, I think I see a lot of people in the world and a lot of people in the, in the biotech world and I, um, non-startups are in big pharmas and they, they're just, you know, half of their lives, half of their thought process is kind of ruled by fear. And so I think once you can disavow that, I think, I think you can go the best version of yourself. You Have you read the meditations by Marcus Aurelius? It's kind of a continuation of the concept. No, no, I haven't. I, I will check that out. Yeah, there's a specific version. Uh, I will send it. I will double check and give it to you because there's, there's some like really crap. I didn't, I read, I've read three versions and the first two were terrible. But then I finally went up and I asked someone like that loves the book, uh, what they thought. And there's actually a, a one specific version. It, and it's great because it gives you the context, like what logic and, you know, and different things mean to philosophers back then. Like uh, philosophy now is not like self-help at all. It's more about like, what are the cosmos? But back then philosophy also was involved directly with like, how good your life is. But basically I will, I'll send you a very specific uh, version of the book. Awesome. And for everyone else, you can, you can check it out in the show notes. Um, so I, I, uh, this is kind of a new thing. And uh, I'll, we'll guinea pig you and see if, if, if it's good. But uh, so basically for the last like you know hour and a half, I've just like kind of, you know, we've been somewhat drilling you with questions. And so I, I, I talk to a lot of people and I, I think it's only fair. Like, is there a question that you have and is there a specific person you love to answer it? So it, it could be a realistic question. It could be a realistic person. I'll probably tag them or have them on the show and make sure they answer it. It'll be the first question I ask if I have them on. Yeah. I hadn't thought about this yet, so I, <laughs> give me a second. Yeah, I haven't asked anyone this question before, so it's, it's uh, I'm probably not even answering it, uh, asking very well. Yeah, I would say the first thing that comes to mind is I'd, I'd want to understand from somebody who has done, let's say, you know, has 10 plus INDs under their belt. So they basically contributed to drugs getting into the clinic. What are the top two reasons why drugs succeed in the clinic and what are the top two reasons why they fail? If there's anyone in who's listening in that either has that answer and wants to come on here and talk about that, uh, we have one person at the very least and, and many other people that would help as well. Any startup looking to kind of map out what they're going to be doing, that would be very useful for. Yeah. Um, and then the last thing is, are there, um, do you, I don't think you have a newsletter or anything. Like there's not a really good way to stay up to date other than just check your website every now and again. Yeah, we try to update the news uh, whenever there's something to update on. We try not to be overly newsy, so we kind of, we can probably do three or four updates a year. Um, yeah, so we, we probably won't publish again until we're in the clinic. So I probably won't be sharing any more data publicly on the website. But you know, there's always data we can share with with trusted folks as we as we uh, move into the next stages of the company. So you know, it depends if you're um, curious about the work we do. Feel free to reach out. There's a a general mailbox online, and so you know, we we try to respond to everything we get. Um, you know, if you're a scientist and you're curious about the work we're doing, and you know, want to invest yourself in a startup and really see kind of the the inner workings of it and do some really important work there's always will always be positions coming up in the future i think we're, we're full for the moment but you know we always always like to get resumes and you know as we grow the company and grow the programs um, we'll, we'll look to make a couple hours this year probably by q3 q4 so you know just we're always looking for ambitious people to come and, and join us and then uh if, if i can get a, a bonus question with your background in, in private equity uh i have found that 
most science-based founders are really bad at managing investor relations. Uh, yeah. How do you how do you think about managing that relationship? Like, because yeah. well, one one thing I've seen is like, I I know people who literally never email their investors, and then like they come to raise money, and then they're like, "Hey, give me your money," and they're like, "I haven't heard from you since I gave you you know five hundred grand." <laughs> that is correct. Yeah, it happens a lot actually, and I it actually woke me up uh, last year. I was advising. I used to advise a company, and um, I saw one of their investors. Who I, I not, not one of our investors, but I just you know I recognized them, so I just want to say I started chatting casually, and they said that company that you advised, they even they even talked to me in eighteen months, and now they just called me and they're out of money, and I didn't want to talk to them, and I was like, wow, I think I've done that too. So um, so it kind of actually kicked me into gear at the end of last year. I was mm-hmm. like, oh boy, I'm guilty of this sometimes. Like so, what I do basically, so so why does it happen? It happens because. Anyone running a company is very busy. So it's like, unless it's in your inbox, unless somebody's like asking for it, you're probably just not going to be like, oh, proactively, oh, I should definitely update that person who haven't, who has not reached out to me either or asked for an update recently. So it's just, it's just like not top of mind typically. Um, two, you know, we send out a newsletter and then a newsletter we always offer like, hey, or we offer an update to investors once a quarter or so. And we say in that, in that, in the update, we say, here's my link. If you want to schedule some time with me to get a formal update and sit down and look at some slides. Happy to do it, right? So some investors respond to that. They, they jump all over it. Some investors, you know, say, okay, don't read the newsletter. Some of them do, don't respond, you know, whatever. So you kind of like, so it's very easy to lose those investors and kind of not proactively try to engage them. But um, that experience last December actually woke me up very significantly. And I, you know, this year I came back to work and I said, I'm going to reach out to every investor I haven't spoken to, you know, let's say in more than four months, they're getting an email from me. I'm going to tell them the progress from me directly. I'm going to offer to meet up with them. And show them slides whenever they want to or whenever we can find a good time so that actually um, woke up a couple of investors that i haven't spoken to probably in over six months and they were like yeah it's good and, you know we love to get updates you know it's our it's our investment so yeah we always want to know what's going on we don't want to waste your time and i said it's not a problem you know we you know i'd like to talk about the updates because eventually i'm going to explain this to the outside world anyway so i'm going to rather just sit down with you and do it it just it just takes a lot of time especially you know you raise more money you have more investors to to think about so we, everyone takes, you know, probably a couple hours to sit down with and prepare for and make sure that they're getting what you're telling them. So it, it is a it is a time investment, but it is worthwhile. So I'd say it's it's something that I only recently woke up about myself. Um, but once I did, I saw the value in it very quickly. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah it's, a, it's an obvious thing. It's an honest thing to make a mistake on. Even with your background, <clears throat> I, w- I would have thought like, oh, wow, this guy wouldn't have this problem. Like, you know, he he knows, like, give, give the information. But even with... Uh, like I think that it's 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 a it's a good thing you had the problem too because then other people who are listening can be like <clears throat> okay good you know it's like if if Arnold Schwarzenegger you know doesn't work out for a day or you know a week it's like okay like people people are human and that's a, that's yeah. a good good thing yeah it's not intentional you just gotta you know just got it's one more thing to add to the list of things to do so it's just kind of it, it, that's why you lose track of it yeah do you uh do you just update them or do you proactively let them know that things that you're you're struggling with they need help on um. I try to do both. I try to just, you know, yeah. try to show them what's new since they last, since we last spoke. And then I go, you know, you and I have been asked for your investors if it's relevant. So I'd say, you know, here's something I could use your help on. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of, a, it's kind of bifurcated, right? So one is here's what I can use your help on here. And then there's a second set of like, here are things that we're working on next that you can't help with, but just FYI, you know, here are things that are our next milestones. Yeah. I think that sometimes people only say the good things. Yeah. And then when something bad happens, they're like, well, I thought things were good. They don't like you're the one people, 18 months, nothing yeah. bad. You, you assume things are well, and then, you know, fire from the sky. I think letting people know the struggles 
yeah. endears them to you and wants to, you know, I mean, imagine an employee that never told you, you know, that the, the fire behind the door, then you open the door one day and just in your face, like you're probably like, oh, I'm not very happy about this. Yeah, that's one I got woken up about too recently is, hey, as, as a CEO, you don't want to go to your investors and say, here are all the problems we're having because it doesn't hmm. sound good, it doesn't feel good. Um, but I also learned the hard way that you know, investors do want to hear about the problems. They do want to know everything. They don't want to be, you know, kind of just hearing, just looking at the roses. They want to be looking, they want to know the thorns are too. And so I, I learned that lesson, you know, significantly last year as well. Because I, I, I used to go kind of in the more here are the roses and let's not talk about the other stuff because you can't help me with it. It's like kind of like very specific scientific challenges. Um, but I've learned, you know, that's not good either. So we're all learning. Um, it's all, it's all a process. Thank you for joining us today with the Learn With Lowell show. Check us out at learnwithlowell.com. Anywhere podcasts can be found. Subscribe. Tell me what you thought of this episode. Check us out on YouTube in particular. It's a new thing I'm doing. Uh, Timestamps and links are in the show notes. Thank you for coming. And I hope everyone, every one of you found something today that you're curious about to learn more about. And you'll go out and be curious and learn something new. Thank you and have a great rest of your day.